Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is The Right Time for Emerging Markets Equities and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Curtis Butler, Client Portfolio Manager, Emerging Markets and Asia-Pacific Equities Team, J.P. Morgan Asset Management. And with me today are Leon Eidelman, Portfolio Manager, Emerging Markets and Asia-Pacific Equities Team, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, and George Iwanicki, Portfolio Manager and Macro Strategist, Emerging Markets and Asia-Pacific Equities Team, J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to Insights. Thanks for having us. Uh, thanks, Curtis. Nice to be here. It's been a very interesting time in emerging markets for the past 18 months. And George, I'll start with you about the big picture. EME has posted very strong performance over the past year and is outperforming developed markets significantly, following nearly five years of dramatic underperformance. What's really driving this recovery in absolute and relative performance? I'd go back to the reference you made in the question about the five years of underperformance because to me, the three main drivers, what we called at the time the headwinds that were affecting emerging markets, were threefold. One was strengthen the dollar, which notoriously is a headwind for the asset class. The other is we were on the downside of the big supercycling commodities, where commodities were actually falling. And then thirdly, both EM and global growth were decelerating over most of that period. And as a result, there was downward pressure, not only on GDP estimates, but more importantly, on earnings and earnings estimates. So in effect, you had a profit recession in much of the EM world. All three of those have effectively turned over the past year and a half. Commodity prices effectively found a bottom in the latter part of 2015 and early 2016. Secondly, the dollar, particularly now, shows increasing signs that we've seen the peak in the currency. So the long dollar cycle, a headwind is over. Uh, And the third is, if you look not only again at GDP expectations, but importantly at earnings estimates and earnings expectations, the revision cycle has gone from very negative to very positive, and that continues through today. So in my mind, all of the things that were plaguing emerging markets for five years have turned and have been driving the asset class higher over the past, at this point, 18 months. Has the recovery been broad-based or really focused in a few sectors? At country level, it's been reasonably broad-based. At sector level, particularly if you focus on the last point I made about earnings and earnings revisions, the initial turn was highly dominated by commodities, where earnings and earnings expectations had become bombed out and then turned. We saw some broadening thereafter. The sectors that look like they're now leading on that front, interestingly, are what we would call either new economy and also the financials. And by the way, these are two large sectors in EM, the new economy piece being a very large sector at this point in EM relative to what it was 10 or 15 years ago. And importantly, those are the areas where we've seen sort of concentrated leadership, if you will, in terms of the earnings cycle. And for the first time in a while, we've had confirmation across all sectors that things are actually moving moving towards a recovering economic environment. Even when we track our own earnings estimates from our analysts covering stocks, it's pretty unambiguous that earnings have begun to recover. And I think the market is obviously taking notice because from the lows of early last year, EM is up almost 60% in dollar terms. What do you say to clients and investors who think, I'd like to get into EM, but have I missed the move? I'd say two things. The first is, let's remember how long the down cycle was. 
It was five years of underperformance by the asset class. The second is if you think about the drivers that we talked about and then understand not only where the business cycle is, but also where the earnings recovery cycle is that Leon just referenced. In my mind, we're basically in what I would call year two of what looks like a multi-year cycle where EM basically has what you would call tailwinds behind it rather than the headwinds that again caused a five-year compression in the asset class. So in our view, it's really premature to argue that we've missed the move. Just to put it in perspective, valuations, most of the valuation measures that we look at for the asset class as a whole, had basically flirted with hyper-cheap levels in early 2016. Obviously, they've rebounded. But all they've done is they've begun to move back toward what you would think of as historical norms. They are not back to the kind of levels that we would associate with uh, prior peaks in the asset class. Very unlike, by the way, the U.S., where there is some worry that valuations are are near the top end of their historical range. So for investors who basically aren't involved at this point and are just discovering the non-U.S. story, would you recommend that they get involved today or should they wait for a pullback? It's not too late to get involved. Strategically, you should be aiming to get back into the asset class. Given what I would call, I'll use a fancy word here, a monotonic rise in the asset class and in equity markets generally this year, it would arguably say that we ought to be ripe for a pullback, not only in EM, but more broadly in global equities. So maybe one wants to be opportunistic and wait for that. The central point I'd make here is it is not too late to be coming back to the asset class. In our view, there's as much ahead as there is behind. Great. Thank you, George. Leon, turning to you as a stock picker, where are you seeing opportunities and are there very clear themes showing up in your portfolio today? Yeah, I think some of the points that George was talking about, about how we're starting to move into a better environment, definitely apply to the stock world as well, because we've seen earnings suffer over the last five years. And if indeed you're moving towards a better economic environment across our economies, then actually what you're going to start seeing is earnings growth at the corporate level kick in as well. And stands to reason, if you stand right back about why people would come into this asset class, it stands to reason that lower levels of development allow for more idiosyncratic corporate alpha to come through as well, as business basically can outgrow the economy by being able to tap into an underserved consumer base. So Broadly speaking, you're starting to see an improvement in in earnings across the board. There are some places which have historically been important for us in that they tend to be the places where we think there's real opportunity for corporates to do that. And I'd say India still stands out as an important one for us. You know, it's, it's a gigantic economy, obviously, but it's also an economy which is either underserved by existing incumbents or there's a lot of virgin territory for businesses to become present. For example, the Indian financial sector is a good one where you've got 66 to 70 percent of all loans being done by government-owned banks. And realistically, these banks aren't providing the sort of service that consumers would want on one hand. And on the other hand, actually hamstrung by relatively low levels of capital. And that faces off against the private sector where banks give you the sort of service you would want as a consumer and have sufficient capital to lend. So even in a world that doesn't grow, these guys take share. In a world which is growing, not only can they take share, but they can also continue to increase the size of their lending books. So, you know, that's an important one. Another important one for us is really around, as George mentioned, the new economy. And the new economy is really interesting in that I think people are used to looking at it from the Western side. People generally talk a lot about the Amazons and the Googles of the world, and they expect to find an equivalent in our world. 
And what you find is that oftentimes there is no exact equivalent because things have come from different places. For example, if you look at commerce in China, you're not talking about a business that had to grow and outcompete existing incumbents in the brick and mortar space because realistically that didn't exist. And that's led to a totally open playing field for some of these businesses to become actually today the largest merchants in China altogether. And you see this across the asset class. So this whole adage that in EM nobody had a fixed line phone because they went from no phone to mobile phone is applying in the same way on the commerce side. They've gone from no real large brick and mortar players that give them the service they would want to getting it delivered next day with all the sorts of bells and whistles that you get in the West. And then that's created gigantic businesses with real business propositions. So I think those are important places and places where we look for corporate Alpha. I'll pick up on one point because I mentioned it earlier, this new economy point, and then Leon just elaborated. You might be thinking to yourself, EM is really just about commodities. While the economies still have commodity exposure, particularly the very intensive commodity exposures in places like Brazil, Russia, arguably Colombia, places like that. But just to put it in perspective, when you look at today's EM index and just use that as some measure of what the universe is, that a portfolio manager like Leon is picking stocks from, that index now has as much in the way of new economy, that is hardware, software, and then what you would call sort of consumer-oriented online retail, it has as much new economy as the S&P and well more than what you see in the EFA index, for example. So as I like to put it, this is not your father's EM. This is actually an EM universe that actually looks quite similar to the U.S. universe in terms of being focused on what you'd call these new economy opportunities. Great. Liam, what we find sometimes with broader audiences is that there's a, a question that comes up saying you're investing in some pretty far-fung places. Are you able to get the information that you need? Is the disclosure good enough? Can you trust the information you're getting out of these companies? Yeah, I think that's definitely improved over the years. Most countries we would look at have either tended to adopt IFRS or IAS type standards. Corporates we would be investing in have tended to have you know big name auditors behind them, and that makes the data all that more reliable. Nonetheless, I don't think a replacement for good old judgment exists, which is why we have 40 analysts looking at these things. And oftentimes, it's not just, is this number true or false? It's how does it fall into context of how this company looks relative to everybody else? And are there economics at play which might be impacting these numbers in ways in which we couldn't expect to continue into perpetuity? So you'll find that oftentimes the state has either inherent subsidies running through the numbers, but ultimately, the numbers are good. You still have to have some sort of judgment as to whether you believe that business to be you know, what it looks like on paper. You mentioned the opportunity for earnings growth to pick up substantially on the back of the improved macro picture George was saying. I know your team has done a lot on identifying the sources of returns and how that has steered the kind of investors that we are. Can you um, give us a little bit of insights into that? What's really the long-term driver of returns in EM? This is an important topic for me, just because oftentimes when I meet clients, the question is, is now a good time to come into the asset class or get out of the asset class? And that effectively reveals that they see this asset class as a trading asset class, something you come in and out of. And yet the exercise we went through was one where we looked at the returns on rolling five-year periods for this asset class and tried to glean whether, since we started getting numbers in the late 80s, whether there was one driver which was more important than others. And just to remind, you know, from our perspective, you can make money from earnings growth, from valuation, from currency, 
and from dividends. And really amongst those four components, you want to get an understanding whether one is more important than others. If you go back to where I started, the should I come into the asset class or should I exit the asset class basically tells you that most people think that the majority of the return you're going to make is going to come from valuation. And yet, if you break the return history into five-year discrete periods, it becomes incredibly evident that the single most important factor in making returns as a long-term investor is actually earnings growth. And when you recognize that, it then basically says that you should spend most of your time trying to identify businesses that can outgrow the rest of the asset class or that can grow with a strong element of duration rather than trying to time the market. And that's precisely why we focus on businesses and businesses' ability to grow. And again, ask yourself a question, why is this asset class less interesting? Well, it's less developed, and that should basically tell you that the right businesses have the ability to reinvest capital for much longer periods of time without normalizing that than what you would find in the developed world. And it sounds like that seems to be the edge that the research team provides. Yes, and I think we can show how over the long term we've been able to identify businesses that outgrow the asset class more consistently. And to me, that's really what we're looking for at the end of the day. And on that basis, Curtis, it's worth remembering all of our research analysts are actually charged with looking out on a five-year view and trying to gain insight into each of those drivers of return so as to effectively look at the type of horizon that an investor like Leon is looking at. You mentioned that we have nearly 40 stock-picking analysts I'm assuming they can cover an awful lot of stocks. Yeah, that's definitely right. At the moment, we cover just under 1,000 stocks. That number will continue moving upward over time. It's effectively giving us total self-reliance in terms of research. And again, it's a very broad asset class. So from where I sit, it's having one framework, which is what George was making reference to, that all analysts use, and then applying that to a very broad asset class allows me to harness the breadth that all that coverage brings. So process and breadth is what we think will be an edge over the longer term. And with regulations changing as they are, our ability to rely on internal research sounds like a big advantage. I think we are uniquely positioned in a world where a lot of people have been relying on sell-side research. I would even compound that with saying, you know, if you're dependent on sell-side research, what is your edge? But you'd be surprised. I think we are uniquely positioned to enter an environment where we have to fend for ourselves. The opportunity sounds pretty significant. Let's turn to the risks. And I'd like to hear from both of you, George, maybe starting with you, what do you see as the primary risks to the case that you made and to the story that EM can continue to outperform? And then, Leanne, please jump in any time sharing what you see. I'd sort of cite three risks. One is in the um, what I'll call the short term, where I made reference earlier to sort of the straight line move upward or the largely straight line move upward that we've seen in global equity over the course of this year. And I'd simply say this, that in terms of the short term risks of a correction, to our way of thinking, it looks to us like there are more risks outside of the asset class than inside of the asset class. And what I mean by that is the combination of relatively rich valuations in the U.S. alongside low implied volatility, which some people take as a sign of complacency, combined with the fact that there's been narrow breadth and leadership in equity markets over the past few months. That whole combination says to us there is some risk of a global pullback in equities in the near term. Not a bear market, but a pullback. I wouldn't be surprised by, like I said, the origins of that, if you will, are probably concentrated in the developed world. But one should not mistake that just given the beta of our asset class, if you get a correction in the developed world, EM is unlikely to not participate. 
when I think longer term, I actually think there are sort of two risks. One is as the kind of performance cycle is unfolding in EM that we've now seen about a year and a half of, as that continues, you do start looking over your shoulder for signs of complacency or signs of rich valuations for the asset class overall. We don't see many of those yet. That's the good news. But if you look over the long term, you want to pay attention if those do emerge in the next year or two. The second is when you look further down the pike, I think it's well known that there are plenty of imbalances in China, both macroeconomic and financial. And we do sort of regularly debate, quite frankly, Leon and I regularly debate the likelihood that those imbalances give rise to some sort of a hard landing or what you might call a Minsky moment or something like that. So we are monitoring those. We don't see it as being a near-term risk But if you extrapolate present trends and don't see what you might call as normalization or rebalancing on those trends, you can look out on a five-year or three- to five-year horizon and see those risks rising. So that is something that we're constantly monitoring. And make no mistake, China's not only a big economy. Remember that it's the biggest part of the EM universe in which we're investing from a market cap perspective and, if anything, poised to get larger given some of the index inclusion issues. I would just say, you know, this is... In an up market, one of the few years I can remember when we haven't had an intra-year correction, which is significant. You know, I remember 2003 through eight. Every year we had a 15% correction somewhere, and and ultimately I think the the big picture still looked pretty good. So effectively, what that did was shake out some of the excess valuations, but it was more of a buy the dip sort of transaction or trade, and that's what you should have done. Because the fact that you had a short-term correction in markets didn't derail the much improved economic environment. And, and I do feel like we're in a relatively good space right now. You know, structural risks have been much more addressed. Currencies have taken it on the chin. And, you know, the countries that have had imbalances have adjusted for that, mostly through the currency. Earnings are recovering. And so if you did get that sort of correction, I'm inclined to say that it's a sort of correction where we would step in and try and find things that get overly discounted. In the long run, you know, as George mentioned, I think we've gone at it a couple of times. But I'm pretty sanguine that it's not a 2017, 18, 19 issue. It's, it's really more about addressing the aggregate debt loads as you get into the 2020s and beyond. One risk that we as a team discuss very often is policy risk, particularly coming from the U.S. as there was a lot of, a lot of headlines, a lot of noise over the past year. But the asset class has been extremely resilient, and particularly the targets of those attacks or those headlines seem to have done quite well. Take the example of the Mexican peso. How do you view that, and has the market's perception of that risk changed over the past year? I think it has, and I think the market has become more comfortable in understanding what you might call the bark of monetary, or I should say U.S. policy versus the potential bite. And you brought up Mexico, where, Curtis, it's a good example where there have been threats both during the campaign and then thereafter, periodically threats about NAFTA being torn up. And in fact, as we sit here and speak today, it's being renegotiated and being renegotiated with a handshake agreement not to leak the nature of the negotiations, which is a way on the Mexicans' part, in my view, of trying to make sure that there is a muzzling of sorts of some of the excess noise coming from the northern side of that border. China is another good case in point where we heard a lot of saber rattling about trade policy being directed at China. And so far, really what we've gotten is, if anything, 
the mere threat of that being used to try to keep uh, China on sides in the North Korean debate. But nonetheless, you still haven't gotten what I'll call the, the downside policy of kind of an initiation of a trade war. And I frankly think cooler heads within the administration have talked the president down from some of those more extreme views that we heard during the campaign. George, turning to currency, you mentioned in your original comments that the strength of the dollar is one of the primary drivers of EM's underperformance for that terrible five-year period. Yes. Can you tell us how you do your currency work and how that's incorporated into the way the portfolio managers operate, how those risks are actually factored in by our team? Sure. You might be thinking to yourself, gosh, with all this conversation about currency, these guys must be very active hedgers across portfolios on currency. And the fact of the matter is we're not. Very few of our managers are active hedgers, and the ones that are are actually quite what you might call selective or opportunistic in their hedging. What we try to do really is two things. The first is, Leon mentioned earlier, our framework for looking at five-year-out expected returns, including a currency component. We have a lot more confidence in being able to forecast what you might call a central tendency of what a currency's fair value is and then adjust it for inflation and look out five years with the expectation that we converge toward that, then we do our confidence that we can call this week's, next week's, next month's, or even next quarter's move on currencies. So every stock that we have covered, and Lan mentioned almost a 1,000 of them, every one of those has a component projection in it, if you will, that focuses not only on the company specifics, namely sort of a fair value exit multiple, an earnings trajectory, a dividend trajectory. It also has built into it what you might call a currency contribution on the basis of whether the home currency is likely to revalue or devalue up to or down to its fair value. So we've built it in that way. What I will tell you is beyond having sort of a fundamental central tendency that we expect currencies to go to, we have engineered what we like to call the risk scorecard, which is imagine thinking about all of the risks that every investor worries about in emerging markets and boil those down to not only component rankings that are statistically generated, but then boiling it down, imagine this, to one single number where you think of all the risks you worry about in EM and put it into one single number and then say, let's compare that to its own history or let's compare it to where the rest of the universe is to understand where fundamental risk is, which could impact a currency. And George, one less talked about component of the currency story. We know about the strength of the dollar contributing to a weak translation effect for earnings, contributing to weaker commodities. But one that I've heard you talk about quite a bit when the dollar was surging, was the risk to China of a strong dollar. And since the dollars come back, has that risk come off significantly? And is that something investors in emerging markets can feel more comfortable about? I think this was less talked about, and it's still less appreciated than it should have been, is remember that up until 2005, China effectively pegged its currency to the dollar. Thereafter, it went through a decade of revaluation that was by design. But nonetheless, it's worth remembering that the RMB was revaluing but then the dollar cycle kicked in in the latter half of that decade, and the dollar was rallying. So in effect, the Chinese were revaluing upward their currency relative to what I would call the strongest currency in the world in 2014 and 15. And in effect, what I think it did, it effectively supercharged the revaluation of the Chinese currency. It didn't make the currency rich in the way that you would think it would create all sorts of competitiveness problems. But what it did do is it made China vulnerable to effectively importing deflation because by being connected to the dollar, it was effectively rallying like the dollar versus everybody else. And remember, for five years, the China PPI numbers were running negative. 
In other words, there was negative inflation in the industrial sector. Well, anyone who thinks about this for a nanosecond knows that high debt levels combined with negative nominal growth or deflation is actually a bad idea. And to me, one of the big developments that began to unfold over 2015, but really was executed in 2016, is that China effectively began to decouple the currency from the dollar and started focusing the Chinese currency against a basket of currencies. And as a result, it's given them more flexibility around the movements in the dollar. Uh, the effect of that is the PPI climbed out of deflation last year, has basically remained out of the deflation zone in China, and the currency, which had sold off during the last leg of the dollar rally, has actually come back a fair amount to the point where, uh, you know, as we put together this discussion today, the Chinese look like at the margin they're beginning to ease some of the capital controls on domestics that they had imposed to try to control the downside on the currency. They're now getting a bit concerned about the potential rebound or the upside. But again, I think there's more flexibility that the Chinese built into their currency policy. And that was a big deal in effectively allowing them to get out of what you might call a de facto dollar peg strategy that was yielding some very negative side effects. So it sounds like there's a couple different perspectives that ensure that dollar strength is problematic for emerging markets and that the kind of dollar weakness or dollar stabilization that we've been seeing more recently is pretty positive for emerging markets. It's interesting. You can look at the 20-plus years of emerging markets at this point, nearly 30 years of what I would call measured history of modern emerging markets. And when I say measured history, meaning uh, market performances, et cetera, of indices that were investable. And the point that I'd make is, for a good part of that period, exchange rates were fixed. They've been floating over the past 10 to 15 years for most economies. So under different FX regimes, the one thing that has been permanent throughout is that even under different FX regimes in EM, dollar strength has been associated with EM underperformance relative to global equity, and dollar weakness has been associated with outperformance. That relationship is as strong today as it was historically, even under different currency regimes, as I mentioned. So to me, the end of the dollar bull cycle, which dates back to 2011 and really ran its course through the end of last year, the end of that dollar rally cycle and the beginnings of what we think may be the retracement cycle that usually follows, this tends to mean that a headwind has become a tailwind. So fundamentally, we view this quite positively from an EM perspective. Terrific. Thank you, George. Leon, sticking with the subject of China, a lot of announcements about China over the past year about including China A shares or domestic shares into the standard indices like MSCI. First of all, what are China A shares? And second, how are we viewing this opportunity? China A shares are shares that trade in Shanghai or Shenzhen. The reason why they exist is as a closed capital account country, China had not made its exchanges open to foreign investment until relatively recently. And they've been going through a process of slowly but surely opening that up. Lastly, with a process through which foreign investors can trade in Hong Kong, shares that had originally only been traded in these other two exchanges, and thereby give foreign investors access to companies which had been listed on the mainland. The key differentiator between the two is that historically the companies that were listed in Hong Kong were companies that the government wanted to push towards international investors. And so unsurprisingly, you look at Hong Kong, and that's not to say all of the companies that are listed there, but you've got you know the state banks, the state petrochemical complex, the state telcos, and that was made available historically. As investors that are much more interested in the consumer, the A-share and B-share markets 
markets are actually much more representative of the sorts of businesses that we would like to find. So you've got a lot more, by the way, of private ownership of these businesses. They don't tend to be dominated by state-level economics, and that's really what we're looking for. And so to a large extent, access through these connect schemes via Hong Kong has been a real shift in our investable landscape. So as you mentioned, yeah, it's more than 25% of the benchmark today, but I think that something which is important investors need to understand is that actually as a market, it's the second most liquid market in the world. It's more liquid than Japan is. And so when people say, well, you know, A shares are now 0.75 basis points of the emerging market benchmark, you have to understand that that's just a mild crack in the door and that realistically you're talking about a market which has the scope to become a major component of the emerging market benchmarks. And depending on the way that you adjust for limited float, you could be talking about a 40 to 45% part of our asset class in the longer term. So it's incredibly important for us, and and as I said, it's the sorts of businesses that we would like to find. Through the process of having an established research team already got views on over 200 to 250 companies on the mainland. And we see that as something that needed to be done before we could actually start moving capital in that direction. So we spent a lot of time building up our company knowledge set and, and understanding where it is that we think we can identify businesses that can outgrow on a consistent manner. And as such, A has become a much more important part of our portfolio. So, for example, for the funds that I run, you're talking about a 5 to 6% percentage of the assets invested in China A. Now, that might not seem like a lot, but again, for reference, the asset class just opened it up, and it opened it up by 70 basis points. So on the margin, it's going to become quite important for us I will make reference to the question you asked before about, you know, how do you trust the numbers? What do you do? And then I would say that to a large extent, the A-share market is a much more immature market than other markets we come across. And oftentimes you're talking about businesses that have been listed by the generation that's running them. That's very different to what you get in this country. You've got, you know, businesses that have been around for hundreds of years, but in China, that's not the case. So Again, this is a place where judgment will make a gigantic difference. And your understanding of who runs these businesses and whether they're aligned with you and whether they run a separate entity, which is getting the economics from the listed entity and what the history of these individuals might be. I mean, these things are proper emerging market investing. And I would say that for that, you need to have a lot of boots on the ground and meet these companies consistently and make sure that they stay on track. But if they do, I think the opportunity is gigantic because obviously you've got a lot of people in China. But on top of that, you've got a market which is incredibly fragmented. Part of what the state left behind was that you either had very large monopolies, but actually the consumer-facing part of the economy never really developed. And part of that was capital was too cheap and competition was too aggressive and, and you didn't really ever get any leaders. But the opportunity for the best businesses to consolidate very large market shares in China is quite large. And from where I sit, that is effectively the opportunity for a business to create idiosyncratic value. A well-run business really has a chance at becoming a very large business, and that's exactly the sorts of stocks that we would look for. Terrific. Thank you. So final closing thoughts. George, any comments or advice about investors thinking about putting money to work in emerging markets? Yeah, I think stay the course. I think the most important point is, yes, the asset class has done very well over the last 18 months. It's done very well both in absolute and relative terms. But remember that cycles for EM tend to be measured in years, not in quarters or in months. And as a result, when I say stay the course, don't think that you've missed it. 
be thinking to yourself, strategically, I should be leaning in and tactically look for opportunities to add to that lean in. Terrific. Thank you both very much. Thank you for joining us at Insights. Thanks for having us. Thank you. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. If you have any feedback to provide, please submit feedback on our website. This podcast was recorded on September 11th, 2017. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks— the value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, Co-Reg Number 197-601-586-K or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, Co-Reg Number 2011-20355-E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., 
In Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, and in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.